0: Remain standing for our gospel lesson from John 11. I'm going to read verses 45 and stop at verse 54. We'll pick up at 55 next next time. Listen to the gospel of God. Then many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things Jesus did, believed in him. But some of them, went away to the Pharisees and told them the things Jesus did. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, What shall we do? For this man works many signs. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and nation. And one of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. Now, this he did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for that nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. Then, from that day on, they plotted to put him to death. Therefore, Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there into the country near the wilderness to a city called Ephraim, and there remained with his disciples." Thus far, the reading of God's Word. This is the Word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, please bless the reading and the preaching and the hearing of Your Word as we consider the deep things of the Gospel of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Fill our hearts with understanding, faith, and gratitude for what you've done for us through the cross of Christ. And we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. Substitutionary atonement. The vicarious death of Christ. Propitiation. Those are some of the theological words that we'll be considering because they come out of this text. They come out of many places in the Bible, but they come out of this text. So we'll be talking about what those words mean, how they relate to us and our salvation in Jesus. First, let's Look at the passage as a whole, get it before us, and consider where we are in John's Gospel. The resurrection of Lazarus by Jesus has just happened. And the people who had witnessed this great miracle were left to wonder at it. How would they respond? Would they believe on Jesus or not? Would they become His followers or not? As we read the rest of the story, we find both reactions. Some believed, others disbelieved. Verse 45 says that then many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things Jesus did, in particular the resurrection of Lazarus, believed in Him. So this this response reminds us of the response of the Samaritans. Back in John 4, the Samaritans came to trust in Jesus through the testimony of the woman that Jesus met at the well. But when they saw Jesus and heard Jesus for themselves, remember what they said? John 4, 42. Now we believe, not because of what you said, but because of what they heard from the woman. For we ourselves have heard Him, and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world many at Lazarus's empty tomb had just experienced something similar now they know that Jesus is indeed the Christ the savior of the world but astonishingly unbelievably not everyone there believed in Jesus that wasn't the response of everyone how could that be how could any of them not believe in Jesus after what they just saw He resurrected a decaying dead man. And yet verse 46 says that some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them things Jesus had done, Jesus did. Now we might like to believe that that perhaps some of them went away to tell the Pharisees with the hope of winning them to the truth. Maybe, but that's not how the text most naturally reads. Notice the contrast that John sets up in verses 45 and 46 between those who believe and those who go to the Pharisees. This this suggests that their primary intent in going to the Pharisees was malicious. They were tattling on Jesus. They had failed to believe in Jesus even after he raised a man from the dead. How could that be? It's hard to believe that people could witness Jesus raise someone from the dead and refuse to believe in him. But that's how hard the human heart is apart from the conquering grace of God. That's that's where we would all be apart from the spirit opening our heart by his grace alone. The unbelieving heart can explain away anything. It can rearrange the evidence however it must to maintain disbelief. No amount of data or evidence or deductive arguments can bring someone to faith in Christ if the spirit does not open that person's heart 100, 100% of the way. In Luke 16, there's a different narrative with a different Lazarus. These aren't the same Lazaruses. This could be a little confusing. There's a different Lazarus. It's it's the story of the rich man and Lazarus. In that story, both Lazarus and the rich man die. Lazarus goes to paradise and the rich man goes to hell where he's tormented. From hell, the rich man, you remember, begs. Abraham to to raise Lazarus from the dead and send him to my family members to call them to repentance so they can escape what I'm experiencing. But Abraham tells the rich man at the end of Luke 16, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And the rich man said, no, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But Abraham said to him. if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, even though one rise from the dead. The story of, Lazarus, of Lazarus's resurrection in John 11 proves that what Abraham told the rich man is true. Many of the Jews standing at Lazarus's empty tomb were not persuaded. They didn't repent, even though they had just witnessed a man rise from the dead. So never forget this principle when you're talking to unbelievers, to atheists, to those who deny the scriptural teaching about God and about Jesus and about salvation. If someone does not want to believe in Jesus, you won't be able to argue them into the kingdom. You can't convince anyone to believe in Jesus With logic and evidence. You can't defeat anyone's depraved heart. You can't open anyone's spiritual eyes. You can't raise anybody from the dead. You can't make anyone alive in Christ. Only God can do. That's God's business. Not yours. John describes the Pharisees' reaction in verses 47 and 48. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, What shall we do? For this man works many signs. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and nation. <coughs> Notice that they don't deny that it happened. Uh, for all intents and purposes, they were there. They, they know that it's impossible to disprove what the the historical event that's just happened. But that doesn't change their minds. It doesn't help them to believe in Jesus. They just double down. The resurrection of Lazarus, actually, they accept it, and it's making them nervous. This, This wasn't a mere resuscitation. You know, where somebody is pronounced dead for 15 minutes or an hour or whatever, and then they're brought back. He didn't just lose his vital signs for a little while. No, this was the resurrection of a decaying corpse that had been dead for four days. From the opposition's viewpoint, the resurrection of Lazarus was devastating evidence and undeniable as well. The new star witness in the case for Christ is a resurrected corpse who had already been buried. The Pharisees don't deny what happened, but this miracle doesn't draw them any closer to believing in Jesus. They're not interested in the truth. Their dilemma seemed unsolvable. They're in a predicament. And they didn't know where to look for a solution until Caiaphas came to the rescue. Caiaphas was the high priest. He was also a Sadducee, which meant that he didn't believe in the resurrection from the dead of any kind. Also, as a Sadducee, he worked closely with the Roman government. And he didn't want anyone rocking the boat, especially not a peasant from Galilee. So let's look at Caiaphas' Caiaphas's solution in verses 49 and 50. And one of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. You dimwits. Nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. So in essence, Caiaphas says, you you fools. You don't know what you're talking about. The answer... The solution is very simple. It's better that one die than that our whole nation perish. Caiaphas was cold and calculating. He had climbed the ecclesiastical ladder. He was at the top of his profession. He hated Christ because he was a threat to his position and power, the status quo. But Caiaphas was also an unwitting prophet of Christ he's a prophet john tells us this in the next two verses look at verses 51 and 52 now this he did not now this he did not say on his own authority but being high priest that year he prophesied that jesus would die for the nation and not for that nation only not for israel only but also that he would gather together in one into one people The children of God who were scattered abroad. So this this right here is the heart of our passage. Here Caiaphas unknowingly gives a clear prophecy of the vicarious atonement of Jesus. Vicarious means done for the sake of another. Done as a substitute for another. The vicarious atonement of Christ is His death for the sake of others, as a substitute for others. He died in the place of His people. That's what vicarious atonement means, or substitutionary atonement. And Caiaphas unwittingly prophesied about this great event. Without realizing it, he foretold the most important event in all of human history. The vicarious atonement, the vicarious death of jesus the main idea of this passage is the substitutionary sacrifice of our savior on the cross we're going to come back to verses 51 and 52 in a moment and we're going to consider why jesus died and the scope of his atonement but let's look briefly at 53 and 54 john adds in verse 53 then from that day on they plotted to put jesus to death The idea there is that they were resolved to put Jesus to death, which included planning, plotting. The decision had been made already. The verdict was in before the trial happened. The only thing that remained was to carry out this death sentence as quickly as possible. Jesus is not to be arrested in order to be tried. He is to be tried because he has already been found guilty. Unbelievers don't reject Jesus because they weighed the evidence and found the case for Christ lacking. They reject God and his Messiah because they hate them. So don't fall into the trap of thinking that an unbeliever just needs more argumentation, more data, more evidence, more reasons to believe, more emotional appeal. They have all the information and arguments they need. Paul says in Romans 1.20, For ever since the creation of the world, God's visible attributes have been clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Now, God can use various means like arguments, things like that, but that's not What changes people's hearts? It's God, God's spirit working in the heart. People reject the God of the Bible because they despise him and don't want to bring their lives into submission to the truth. And we must never forget that. That was true of us before God saved us. And there's a lingering old man, old Adam still in us. And it's true of everyone we talk to who is... Rejecting Jesus. It's never about the evidence and arguments. That wasn't the case here. And it's not the case today. That's why when people tell me that they believe the Scriptures. And even believe in Jesus. But they don't believe that Jesus is God's eternal Son. I know right away that their problem is not intellectual. Intellectual. Their problem is not that they need to be taught how to read the Scriptures better. Their their problem is not that they have yet to be presented with a better argument for the identity of Jesus, the deity of Jesus. No, the Bible is clear on all those issues. Their problem is with Jesus Himself. They don't want Jesus to be their God, just as the Jewish leaders in John 11 didn't want Jesus to be their God. That's at the bottom of everything else. It doesn't matter to them. It doesn't matter to these Jewish leaders whether he is who he says or not. Whether Jesus is the one true God in human form is beside the point to them. The only point they care about is that they just don't want him to be the one true God in human form. And they don't want to acknowledge that he is, even if he is. They hate Jesus and they need him dead, gone, out of their lives. Why? Well, because their hearts are hard. And John gives us a reason here that it's because he raised Lazarus from the dead. That's the only reason we have here, which just shows how ridiculous unbelief is. That's John's way of saying there's no good reason. It's because he raised somebody from the dead. And that's why they're going to want Lazarus dead in chapter 12. Because he, because he was raised from the dead. So we got to kill him. Unbelief is irrational. Jesus finds out about this meeting. And he responds to it in verse 54. The last verse we'll consider this week. "Therefore, Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there into the country, near the wilderness, to the city, to a city called Ephraim, and there remained with his disciples. So Jesus is making something of a theological statement here. "No human court will force him to the cross. No amount of plotting is going to get him to the cross sooner." Then He plans to go to the cross. He will die at the time appointed Him to die by the Father, no earlier, no later. His hour has not yet come, and the Jews can't force it to come. Remember what Jesus said back in chapter 10, verses 17 and 18. I lay down my life, that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. So this brings us back to the central message of today's text. Jesus is the Savior who died a sacrificial death as a substitute for His people. That's the big idea here. Jesus is the Savior who died a sacrificial death as a substitute for For His people. It's no exaggeration to say that the cross of Jesus Christ. Stands at the center of the Christian faith. Along with the resurrection. But it's also no exaggeration to say that few people. Really understand the meaning of the cross. Few doubt that Jesus died. By crucifixion. But why Jesus died. And Or what his death means is a puzzle to many. Even many Christians have a hard time explaining that. Even though it's right at the center of the gospel. And how we are saved and what it means to be a Christian. So why did Jesus die? The answer to this question is found throughout the Bible, Old Testament and New. It's found in the Old Testament sacrificial system. It's found in the prophecies. Of the Old Testament. Such as Isaiah 53. It's found in the narratives. Of the Old and New Testament. It's found explicitly. In the doctrinal teachings. Of the New Testament epistles. There are a lot of places we could go. To talk about this. But there are a few passages. In scripture that speak of the death of Christ. As profoundly. And as succinctly. As our text today. Look again with me. At Caiaphas's unwitting prophecy in 49 and 50 Caiaphas being a high priest that year the high priest that year said to them you know nothing at all nor do you consider that it's expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish that's Caiaphas's prophecy but what I really want to focus on is John's interpretation of this prophecy in the next two verses 51 and 52 now this he did not say on his own authority in other words, he's not really the main one in control of what he's saying here. God had ordained for this man to say these words on this day, long before Caiaphas was even born. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and Not for the nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who are scattered abroad, who are all over the earth, who are in many nations. The amazing thing is that Caiaphas unintentionally foretold not only that Jesus would die, but also why he would die and the scope of his atonement. Some of the men in this meeting in the Sanhedrin, in this official meeting that they had, may have been confused or hesitant about what to do. That appears to be the case. But Caiaphas was not. He was as decisive as he was ruthless. There's only one thing to be done, gentlemen. Never mind about the miracles. Never mind about his teaching. Never mind about his character. Never mind... Who he is, the man must die. Every minute that he lives, the danger to ourselves, our nation, our way of life is intensified. Of course, Caiaphas expressed this in terms of the greater good of the people. Politicians always do that. Nonetheless, his advice to the council was pure self-interest and pragmatism. And this suggest, his suggestion won the day among the Sanhedrin. They decided to do away with Jesus. That's the solution. Now, it seems strange at first that such an important prophecy about such an important doctrine should come from such an evil source. But it makes sense when we look at this event in the light of how God used men throughout biblical history. Here's what one old preacher said. Quote, Did not the Spirit of God breathe through Balaam of old? Remember Balaam and his donkey. Is there anything incredible in a man's prophesying unconsciously? Did not Pilate do so? When he nailed over the cross, this is the King of the Jews, and wrote it in Hebrew and in Greek and in Latin, conceiving himself to be perpetuating a rude jest, a joke, while he was proclaiming an everlasting truth. When the Pharisees stood at the foot of the cross and taunted him, he saved others. Himself he cannot save. Did they not too speak deeper things than they knew? End quote. So even the wicked High priest Caiaphas could not help but proclaim the glorious central truth of the Christian faith, that Christ died for Israel and for God's children throughout the world who would be gathered together into one people. And one of the things we learn from this is that God uses even the wickedness and the wrath of man to accomplish his purposes. Jesus could have said to Caiaphas what Joseph said to his brothers after he revealed himself to them in Egypt. Remember Genesis 50 verse 20. You meant evil against me, brothers, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive. Many people should be saved as they are today. That's the story of the cross. It's the story of the cross-shaped life. In verse 51, John mentions that Caiaphas was the high priest. Why, Why does John throw in this detail, this historical background? Because he's telling us who the real high priest is. Hebrews 4, 14. Since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. Caiaphas is just a shadow. Jesus is the reality. The real high priest is also a perfect substitutionary sacrifice for God's people. By becoming a sacrifice for sin, Jesus, the eternal and heavenly high priest, emptied the earthly priesthood of all its validity. Caiaphas was trying to protect his nation and his office by killing Jesus. Ironically though, by sending Jesus to the cross, Caiaphas lost his place. He lost his office. He undermined his whole project by sending Jesus to the to the cross the new and eternal high priest is the only one who is worthy of that office and who is able to execute it perfectly. So from the human perspective, the death of Christ was political. Political maneuvering. The Sanhedrin on the advice of Caiaphas resolved and plotted To kill Jesus so that there would be no uprising at the feast. Pilate consented to his death in order that he might not be accused of encouraging rebellion, insurrection. So from the human perspective, the death of Christ was politically motivated. But from the divine perspective, from the perspective of God's eternal plan and decree... The death of Christ was a substitutionary sacrifice for sinners. Christ died a vicarious death for us. Christ took your place. He became a substitute for you. He died in your stead. He took upon Himself the guilt of your sins and the punishment that your sins deserved so that there might be nothing left for you except eternal life. Caiaphas meant evil against Jesus, but God meant it for good. To bring bring it about that many people should be saved from their sins as they are today. The vicarious sacrifice of Jesus, the substitutionary atonement of Christ, is under attack, as it always has been, even among many theologians who call themselves evangelicals. One objection to the idea of Christ's penal substitutionary atonement goes like this. Isn't God a God of love? Why then would He require a, a sacrifice, a bloody sacrifice, as the basis for man's salvation? Isn't that sort of passé, ancient, and not really who now, uh, in accord with who we know God is. God is love, and if He's all-powerful, then can't He just simply decide to forgive people? Why is a sacrifice necessary? How do we answer that very common objection? Well, we point out that God is not only a God of perfect love and mercy, He's also a God of perfect holiness and justice. And he can't violate any of his attributes. He can't sacrifice the demands of his holiness and justice to save people. That would be going against who he is. No, to save you, God had to satisfy the demands of his holiness and his justice. Just disregard it, he had to address it, satisfy it. And there's only one way to satisfy those demands: the demands of his own character. He had to send his eternally begotten son to the cross to be your sacrificial substitute. That's the only way God could save you and stay true to His nature at the same time. God could not turn a blind eye to your sins. He couldn't sweep our sins under the rug. He couldn't just decide in his mercy to overlook them, to not count them against us. He had to punish them. That's why it's called penal substitutionary atonement. A substitute for us in which he took our penalty. He had to apply his perfect righteousness and justice to your sins and to your sinfulness and mine. Here's how one theologian put it in a book from 1947 titled, Why the Cross? God, quote, God is not only perfectly holy, he is also the source and pattern of Holiness. He is the origin and the upholder of the moral order of the universe. He must be just. The judge of all the earth must do right. Therefore, it was impossible that, sh- that he should deal lightly with sin and, comp- and compromise the claims of holiness. End quote. You see, it was never an option For God to forgive sin at the expense of His holiness and justice. He could only forgive sin at the expense of His Son. The cost of your forgiveness was far beyond your reach. Far beyond your ability to pay. You you didn't have the resources. You never would have had the resources. None of us would have ever had the funds on hand. The price was too high, so God himself undertook to pay the cost himself. He paid the price by offering himself as a perfect sacrifice. Listen to another quote from the 1947 book, Why the Cross. Quote On Calvary, the price was paid, paid by God. The Son giving Himself, bearing our sin and its curse. The Father giving the Son, His only Son whom He loved. But it was paid by God become man who took the place of guilty man. He offered Himself as a sacrifice in our stead, bearing our sin in His own body on the tree. He suffered not only awful physical anguish, but also the unthinkable, unthinkable spiritual horror of becoming identified with sin. He came under the curse of sin. Thus God proclaimed His infinite abhorrence of sin by being willing Himself to suffer all that in the place of the guilty ones in order that He might justly forgive. The love of God found its perfect fulfillment. He did not hold back from even that uttermost sacrifice in order that we might be saved from eternal death through what He endured. End quote. The cross is where the love and mercy of God are made manifest. But it's also where the justice and holiness of God are satisfied. Satisfied. At the cross, God's love and God's justice meet in the death of God's Son. Is this your faith? Is this what you believe? Do you know that you've, been, that, that you've entered into a relationship with God through the sacrifice of Christ on the cross for your sins? There's no more important question for you to answer, be able to answer. Do you know that He died for you and took your place so that you might not have to suffer the consequences of your sins and your spiritual rebellion? Do you trust in Jesus as your personal Savior? Do you accept Christ as your sacrificial substitute? The testimony of, of the entire Word of God is that Jesus was wounded for your transgressions. That He was bruised for your iniquities. That your chastisement was upon Him. That by His stripes, you were healed. That's the Gospel. God sent His only begotten Son to the cross so that whoever believes in Him Whoever puts his faith in Christ and his cross might not perish, but have everlasting life. But there's more to Caiaphas' prophecy. Christ's sacrifice was not just offered at random. It was, it, it was offered for a definite group of people. Caiaphas says in verse 52 that the death of Christ is specifically for the children of God scattered abroad. John 3.16 and other passages teach us that in some sense God offers His Son, He offers the sacrifice of His Son to everyone. For God so loved the world. And that that just means world. That means the whole world. But John 11.52 and other passages teach us that in another, even more fundamental sense, God sent his son for a particular people. The saving power of the death of Christ is limited to those that God has chosen to save. The redemption price that was paid by Christ on the cross was offered with definite design and specific application in mind. Christ died not simply to make salvation possible for the whole world. More importantly, Christ died to make salvation certain for His elect children who are scattered throughout the world. The death of Christ was vicarious. It was substitutional in the same way that each Passover lamb was substitutional. The Passover lambs were not general sacrifices offered offered for no one in particular. Each lamb was killed and offered for a specific group of people, a certain number of people with names and birthdays. The blood of each lamb was put on a specific door post and the lentils, each lamb's blood was shed for the sake of a particular family or group of families each lamb atoned for the sins of certain persons who could be named and numbered and tied to that specific lamb that lamb was their substitute each person had a lamb that his, that was his or her substitute each lamb died a vicarious death for a particular group of of people. Jesus is our Passover lamb. And John 11.52 highlights the vicarious or substitutional character of Christ's death. There are other scriptures that teach the same thing. I'm going to read eight passages from the Old and New Testaments which teach that the saving effect of Jesus' blood is particularly limited to, to those that God decided to save before the foundation of the world. Isaiah 53, verse 8. He was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. So, so why did Christ, what did Christ die for? It says, for the transgressions of a people, my people, God's people. Matthew 1.21, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus died to atone specifically for the sins of his chosen people. Those who would be saved. Matthew 20.28, 20, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Christ didn't give his life as a ransom for everyone indiscriminately. Which would really be for no one at all. He died for the many. Isaiah talks about the many too. We could go into to that language. It's, it's important language. And the many in Isaiah is God's people. It's the people that, that God will save. He died for the many that God foreknew and predetermined to save before the world began John 10 verse 11 I am the good shepherd the good shepherd lays down his life for who everyone the goats and the sheep no for the sheep Ephesians 5:25 husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 and 10. For God has destined us not for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So God is the one that destines this for us to be saved. Some will experience God's wrath, but He's destined us not for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us. So that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Some people will experience God's wrath because the atonement was never applied to them. And we could say, well, God didn't decide to to save them, didn't decide to apply the atonement from them. And that's true. That's what we're talking about here. From another perspective, we could say that they rejected the atonement as well. Both are true. God sent His Son to the world that whoever believes, it's an offer for everyone, but not everyone will accept it. And God sent Jesus specifically for those that He knew would accept it because in His sovereign grace and His sovereign will, He decided that they would accept it. And He gives them the power, the grace to accept it. Titus 2.14, Christ gave Himself for us to redeem us. From all lawlessness. And to purify for himself a people. For his own possessions. Who are zealous for good works. God's redemption is of a particular people. Finally Hebrews 2.17. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers. In every respect. So that he might become a merciful and faithful. High priest in the service of God. To make propitiation. Propitiation. For the sins of the people. Propitiation means the satisfaction of God's anger and wrath towards sin. Christ stepped in between us and God. And took the wrath of God that was directed toward us. That's propitiation. And he did that for the people. For a people. For a specific particular people. The death of Jesus was not an atonement for sin abstractly. It was not a vague expression of divine displeasure against human transgression. It was not an indefinite satisfaction, an indefinite propitiation of God's divine justice. Whatever that would mean. The cross of Christ was personal. Specific, It was a ransom price paid for the eternal redemption of a certain number of sinners. The many in Isaiah and in the Gospels. It paid the full price for all the sins of a particular people. It propitiated God's just and holy wrath against specific persons. It made atonement for the children of God scattered across the whole world and across every generation. So child of God. Jesus loves you and he died for you. He bought you at a high price. A high price to him at no cost to you. It was free. You didn't pay one cent of it. You couldn't have. Jesus paid it all. Believe in Him. Obey Him. Follow Him. Be like the ones who responded in this story with faith. Keep in step with His Spirit all your life. And remember that the cross of Christ... And the cross of Christ alone is the basis for your salvation and the basis for your assurance. Let's pray and thank God for this gospel. Father, thank you for sending Jesus to be our substitute, our sacrifice. Lord Jesus, thank you for being willing to take your Father's wrath, the wrath of God for our sake to save us. And Lord, help us this week to walk in a manner worthy of that gospel. In the name of Jesus, amen.